For those of you who uh, may have forgotten or didn't know, uh, of course, last week we talked about Jesus as the light of the world from John 8, and uh, decided for Advent that we'd follow up on that theme of the light, with the light has come, is our little mini-series for Christmas. Um, and today we're going to be in Isaiah 9. So if you can turn there. It is often a familiar passage for uh, this season, which we're going to spend some time looking at its context, too. I'm actually going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light uh, sorry, has shot light shone. Can't read this morning either. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. Amen. It wasn't, uh, for me anyway, I don't know about for you guys, um, it wasn't a very thankful Thanksgiving for me. Um, as I started thinking about this text, one of the things that came to my mind was uh, from which the title of this sermon comes, The Child Who Is the Light, from the Michael Card song. Celebrate the child who is the light, now the darkness is over. But then as the week happened and played out, a different song came to my mind. And uh, I, When I was a teenager, I was not a big Grand Funk Railroad song. Uh, sorry, fan. Uh, they seemed to be the you know the bands of choice for those who smoked pot, which I didn't do very often. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't really into them. But uh, along the about the same time that I became a Christian, the lead singer and guitarist of Grand Funk Railroad, Mark Farner, became a Christian. 
And so he produced a couple of uh, Christian albums in the late 80s, early 90s. And there was one on the first one um, called Just Another Injustice. And that's the song that kept coming to my mind uh, throughout this week. As I thought about all that sort of unfolded, and it wasn't just this week, but of course it has its roots, not just in the last few months, but decades. But I thought about what happened. And when the store clerk picked up the phone to call the police, they just wanted justice. When the police officer uh, met Michael Brown on his way, on his mind, I'm sure, I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt here, folks, on his mind was justice. The family of Michael Brown, what they wanted was justice. What the DA, I think, wanted was justice. What the grand jury wanted was justice. What the people in the streets wanted was justice. What the shop owners wanted was justice. But it seems that no one got justice that it is a tragic story of so many injustices that it overwhelms us and can sometimes fill us with despair because there are moments we think that things have come so far in this country, and to a degree they have. But we're reminded of how far we still have to go, of how deep the wounds are, for many people, in ways that some of us can't really comprehend. This speaks, I think, to all of that as we consider the context in which Isaiah wrote and the hope that he offered the people of Israel in the midst of the darkness they were experiencing. And so, In a sense, I see it as God's providence that we're talking about this now because I really think it speaks to our situation today as well as the historical situation of Israel and the people of God. What we see this morning, or I want us to see, is that Christ brings the light of justice and deliverance. First off, we see that darkness and gloom depict injustice, and judgment. The opening verses of this passage are dominated by words like gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, often with the adjective deep in front of darkness. You see, in those days of Isaiah, uh, Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Judah, I'm sorry, not Judah, But Ahaz was a very weak king. And for those of you who were in the community groups, you probably remember uh, that there was this alliance at a time between the northern kingdom, Samaria, and the Syrians to get rid of their vassalship uh, to Assyria. And they had invited Judah to join them, and Ahaz said no. And so there was a plot for a time to get rid of Ahaz and to put a puppet king in power so that they would join the alliance and stand up against Assyria. So it was a very unstable time in the history of Judah and the history of Israel or Samaria, the northern kingdom. 
It's not just the instability, political instability that was the problem, but there was also incredible injustice that was taking place within the land. It was an injustice that was not put it, that was not stopped by the political powers. The people had in large part turned away from the Torah, which sought to protect the poor and actually began to exploit the poor. And so the years of Jubilee were not occurring where people were set free from their economic bondage. It was indeed a dark time in the the life of Israel, and it was about to become darker. Isaiah mentions Galilee of the nations or the Gentiles, and Galilee was the northernmost region of, <clears throat> of Israel, the northern kingdom, and it, it, on, the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, you had this little sliver, okay, that was the tribe of Asher. From there all the way until you get to the Jordan River on the north, you have the two tribes of Nephtali and Zebulun, and they comprise that region known as Galilee. Here's the problem. We read in Judges 1, in verse 30 and verse 33, <clears throat> that neither Zebulun nor Naphtali drove out the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. There were still Canaanites amongst them. This means that there were Gentiles galore, and as a result, there would be temptations galore. And so, Naphtali and Zebulon were not known for their faithfulness to God and to the Torah as a result of these things. It's not only that, but we read in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 11, And King Hiram, uh, king of Tyre, supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee." So in order to build his palaces and to build the temple, Solomon made a deal with his father's old ally up in Tyre, which is directly north of Israel. And so uh, Israel would receive the cypress timber that is necessary to build these palaces and, and the temple, and they would receive gold, which was also necessary to adorn these things. And in return, what Solomon gave him was 20 cities in Galilee. Okay, so now you have more Gentiles coming in to Galilee. And this, of course, is before the events that we see in Isaiah chapter 9. What we see in Isaiah 9 is the increase of the darkness. God has brought, it seems, some contempt to that region. This contempt is seen as a judgment for Samaria's injustice. In other words, the injustice that is perpetrated against them is a result of the injustice they had perpetrated themselves. Okay? Similar, uh, similar time frame, similar prophet. Hosea, speaking of what's going on in the north, but speaking it to the south, so it doesn't happen to them. He says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. We see the same sort of thing in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot mock. For what a man sows, he reaps. They had been sowing horrible things, and now they were going to reap horrible things in the north 
and eventually in the southern kingdom of Judah. Because that thing, that group, that, that nation, that world power named Assyria did not go away. Assyria loomed on the horizon for Judah and had already begun to conquer Samaria. That was the contempt that was coming, the contempt of exile, the contempt of being conquered and subdued by this foreign power. Galilee, which was in the north, was the first region of Samaria to be defeated by the Assyrian armies. That's the darkness, the gloom that they want to see lifted. That is the anguish that these people were experiencing. It didn't end quickly. For hundreds of years, because this happens in about 733 B.C., Okay. And so for hundreds of years after this point in time, the people in that region would continue to walk in deep darkness. Now, let's think about what we see around us. There are many societies like our own that can walk in deep darkness. And part of what that is is a cycle of injustice and judgment. Because God does not just kind of sit back, watch, you know, let's see how this movie ends. He's involved and engaged. And the, and the same one who brought Assyria to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom works in history at times to bring judgment upon an injustice and unrighteousness within particular countries and cultures. There's a horrible cycle, a downward spiral that often happens. The festering wounds that don't heal because the balm of Gilead is never applied eventually explode before your eyes. Uh, As one who has in the past six months dealt with all kinds of festering pustules on myself, it's gross, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's bad. That's what we see being played out on our TV as we watch cities burn. And for many of us, uh, we think of the injustices that spawn it. Some of us also think of the injustices that happen in the midst of it. We've, we've all got a memory And we wrestle with that. We wrestle with the reality of the darkness that surrounds us and sometimes is within us. So wherever we see injustice abounding, we see that there is darkness, there is gloom, and eventually there will be judgment. Thankfully, this passage doesn't end there. We see that light and joy depict justice and deliverance. You see, he says that there will no more be gloom, that the gloom is going to be lifted off. We see that the place of darkness becomes a place of glory, light and joy. The next few verses are taken up with these ideas of light and joy. The deep darkness, the people who live in the deep darkness in Galilee would see a great light. 
the gloom that had captured people's souls, filling them with despair, is going to be replaced by joy. And he explains it. It's like the joy of a harvest. Think of the joy of the pilgrims in that first Thanksgiving day. You know, they had survived. They, they had hope that they were going to make it through the winter now. And they celebrated with the friends that they had made who had helped them to learn how to plant things in a, a land that was a little different than the one that they left. And so we see the, the joy found in nature in the harvest, but we also see in this passage the joy that is this great victory, the dividing of the spoils. There is a joy that comes from historical acts of great deliverance. When you think of some, most of us are too old for this, but we've seen pictures VE Day, VJ Day. The the, ri- the righteous, riotous sort of joy that was taking place in the streets of this nation, knowing the war was over and people would come home. Joy indeed. The joy that is depicted here is that little word for is very important. It's, it's there because it is the result of the removal of the oppression and exploitation, the injustice that people had experienced at their own hands or the hands of their fellow Israelites and at the hands of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians and later the Persians and later the Greeks and now that we get to the time of Jesus, the Romans was about to be lifted. The end is seen by talking about the end of the oppression of Midian. And this is one of the important things to remember about the, the deliverance of the people from the Midianite oppression is that while Gideon was the main guy, it wasn't about Gideon. Gideon was called a, a, you know, a great warrior, and he didn't really see himself that way. And it wasn't because Gideon raised a great army that went out against Midian, but actually what God did was continually reduce the size of his army until it was completely insignificant and insufficient for the task because it was going to be about God delivering people. It was going to be about God receiving the glory, about Israel remembering who their God was, how great he was, especially in comparison to those fake gods of the nations around them. This is about God doing something. This is not about the people of Israel rising up to throw off the, the chains of injustice. This is about God rising up to jo- visit his people and bring these things about. But then we see the amazing contrast. This great deliverance, this light that is about to burst forth, does not come from a king. It does not come from a general, but it comes from child. A child is given. A son is born. It speaks about the weakness. God triumphing through weakness and seeming insignificance. That's what's going on here. 
Now, Jesus is not going to do this as a child, but again, this is the idea of there's someone of God's choosing, there's someone of God's planting and putting within you, uh, you, you as a nation, who is going to accomplish this thing, but not in the way you think it's going to be accomplished. This person will become a king because we see that the government will rest upon his shoulder. Now, it's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? It almost speaks back to that idea of the yoke of oppression. Now, the, 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 the government, the burden of the government shall be placed upon his shoulders. He is going to carry it. He, this person is going to bear the burden. Now, this person that is revealed, this child, this son, their character or their name or their reputation is unique and is very significant, especially when you contrast it with the idea that has just been presented that it's a child. Wonderful counselor points to his wisdom, the depth of his knowledge. This is a king, this is a leader that will need no advisors. The greatest kings in Israel, David, Solomon, had advisors. This king will have no need. He alone will be sufficient with his own wisdom. He is also called a mighty God or a warrior God. He is the one who is going to conquer the nations, but he's going to do it without an army. Apart from warfare. He's also called everlasting or ancient father, which reveals, when we think about the Old Testament, his concern for the poor and for the helpless. The people that he reigns over are people that he loves and serves as he rules. In other words, he's not lording it over them. He's not being like so many of the Israelite kings, thinking of the people merely as cattle to be fattened up for their own feast. He cares and loves for the people over whom he rules. He wants what's best for them. And because he is the wonderful counselor, knows what is best for them. Not only that, but we see that he is the prince of peace. He is the one who comes to restore wholeness to a world that is filled with restless misery. As we look at the world, we see lots of that restless misery. Protests in Hong Kong. There's protests all around the world. There have been protests recently in, I think it was Italy. There's a great unrest that occurs because of economic injustice. Okay? And of various kinds. We in our own country deal with the economic injustice, not just of race, but when capitalism goes bad with crony capitalism. There's injustice that takes place because it's not about a free market. It's about who can bribe who the most to get what they want. We see the unrest in the Middle East as as people thinking that in order to have their freedom, someone else must not exist. And they seek to destroy other people. And so, as we look upon the world, we see this restless misery that seeks to consume and to destroy. And that is the world into which Jesus comes. To restore peace, wholeness. Not at the expense of others, but by bringing about justice and righteousness.
It does say that there. With justice and with righteousness is how he's going to establish and uphold the the throne of David, this person. Now, that's bad news. If you're among the people who are unrighteous, who are acting with injustice towards others, the coming of a righteous king who's going to rule with justice is not good news because you are guilty. You are part of the problem. What we don't see so often is that we are part of the problem. Deal with this with, at home all the time with kids. Okay? Every day, it's Jesus' parable of remove the log from your eye. <laughs> because everybody points out everyone else's guilt, but doesn't look at their own. And we have a nation filled with that same problem. If you're on Facebook, you see it. Okay? The competing narratives about what has happened. And everyone is blaming everybody else and no one is taking responsibility for their own actions, their own side. There's plenty of blame to go around to everybody, folks. Plenty of blame. And when a righteous king comes, all people are examined. All will fall short. We'll get to the better news. Well, the good news is that this king comes. And not only does he bear the government upon his shoulders, but he bore the guilt of his people upon his shoulders. You see, the world needs a scapegoat. That's part of what came to me, this, that I kept coming back to me in the, in the course of this week, is a lot of people are looking for a scapegoat, someone to blame, someone to put all of the guilt upon, and we all have different people who we want to put it on. But Jesus comes as the scapegoat to take the blame, to take the guilt, willingly to set people free. Now, a lot of the Jewish scholars thought that somehow this child that was given, this son that was born, that this is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was three about the time that this was written. And when we think about who Hezekiah was, while he was one of the better kings of Judah, he doesn't match this description. He is not the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. But we need to know, that, brothers and sisters, that there is a good king whose justice and deliverance bring light and joy. And so let's think about the third part of this, and that is that Christ's rule expands through his zeal. Luke alludes to this passage in chapter 1 when he's talking about this child that is going to be born to Mary. He's going to sit on the throne of David, the very thing that is talked about here that this child is going to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom shall have no end. It is both in Luke 1 and here in Isaiah 9. We see as well that Matthew quotes this passage in chapter 4 of his gospel. In other words, Jesus in his Galilean ministry is the light that shines in Galilee to fulfill this passage. 
We see that through the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God is inaugurated and continues to grow progressively. That's part of why we also read from Daniel 7. But we also see uh, earlier in Daniel where <clears throat> there is the dream of the, of the great statues, the great monsters, and the pebble comes, the rock comes that is not cut by human hands, and it shatters the feet of the last one. And then it begins to grow and take over the world. So we see that biblically there's a, there's a, a thread of Scripture that talks about how Christ slowly and seemingly almost imperceptibly overcomes the kingdoms of the world. It's not something that happens all at once, but something that is progressive. His kingdom progressively grows until it covers the face of the earth. But first we have to remember that Jesus dealt with unrighteousness and injustice first by bearing guilt. There is pardon that is offered to all of the rebels. Come in. Receive forgiveness for the ways in which you have violated the principles of the great king. We see that this light shines. And as we saw from John chapter 1, the darkness has not overcome it, but we see that the darkness is still there. The darkness still seeks to overcome it. There is ongoing conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness that continues to this day. And that's what we witness when we turn on the news. We see this conflict taking place in our marriages, in our families, our neighborhoods, our nations, our states, our regions of the world. In other words, there's no place exempt from this conflict at this time. It is everywhere. And so we have to step back a little bit and recognize that while the kingdom is already here, and the fact that the church exists, and the fact that the, fact that the message of Christ is proclaimed, that while it's already here, it is not yet complete. That's echoed here. Of the increase, there will be no end. And so we see the gospel, therefore the kingdom, spreading out from this tiny place called Palestine, you know, in, in Jerusalem, to encompassing the Roman Empire, India, China, Africa, North America, South America, Central America, Australia, and so much more. It expands. We see that Christ is at work to bring all of his enemies into subjection. And the good news of that is that most of them, or many of them, are by redemption. Two passages I want us to think about for a second that speak to this. First, the idea of him bringing his enemies into subjection. Hebrews chapter 2. He talks about how Christ is seated, he is enthroned, he is the king, and now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Here's the key part. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
we still don't see everything in subjection to him. It does not mean he's not at work. It just means he's not done working. He is at work. Why is it taking so long? 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There is a people that he has already marked out by election, and he's waiting, applying the redemption in time, keeping his promises in time. And so we see that some will be subjected by the gospel and therefore redeemed, and some will continue to resist to the end. And all of that plays out in history. On your TV, or your radio, or your internet, as you look at the news, that's what's playing out. So this means that there is still darkness around us. But you know what it also means? that we still long for justice. It's not all darkness. There are people who have been changed by the light and they begin to move into those places of darkness. Think about the people who stood up to the rioters. Black and white, they stood together. No, don't burn, don't loot. Think of the people, black and white, who stood together, swept up the broken glass, picked up the broken wood and the charred pieces, and are working together to try and clean up and rebuild the community because they have a hope that extends beyond the present and the present age. There's light out there because there are people who have come under the sway of the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself. And so, we can persevere despite the ongoing presence of injustice if we have the biblical hope of the consummation that when Jesus returns, he's going to set everything right. See, when I hear certain people talk, like Jesse Jackson, I'm not a big fan of Jesse's. MLK? I like MLK. Jackson? I don't like Jackson. But that's neither here nor there. When he talks about keep hope alive, keep hope alive, maybe I'm hearing him wrong, but what I hear is about an earthly hope. The problems in our nation and the problems in our world may never get fixed until Jesus returns. There are people who want us to think that we're going to be able to fix everything. And because of the sin of humanity, we're not going to fix everything. Doesn't mean there won't be progress. Doesn't mean there won't be good stuff. But our hope is ultimately an eschatological hope, not a here and now hope. And when we lose sight of that, then the darkness we see begins to overwhelm us and fill us with despair. And so we have to do have to keep hope alive, but we have to keep the hope in, in alive that rests upon the return of Jesus who will finally, ultimately,
put all things right. Not the hope that rests on man's feeble efforts. And those who have come under his sway, those who have come under the the reign of Jesus Christ, should act justly. They should begin in their affairs with other people to act with righteousness and justice, not taking advantage of other people. And that's one way in which the light continues. By those who, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, don't judge others by the color of their skin, by the character of their hearts instead. The people of God should be doing that. Not looking at the outward man, but looking at the inward man and embracing all who have embraced Jesus Christ. But let us not be proud even with our meager efforts. Let us remember how this ends. It says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's the zeal of God who's going to bring it to pass. It's not our own zeal, our own efforts. It's God Himself who will do this. Does that mean we just sit on our hands? No. As I said, we need to make known the forgiveness that can begin to heal that wound that seems to always get ripped off every, every few years. There's the scab. Let's rip it off. Begin to heal it through forgiveness. Forgiving others of the injustices that have been done so that you begin to free, be free of the, the cycle of bitterness. People need to hear that. People need to see those who actually begin to act with justice and righteousness towards others who are different instead of exploiting them, harming them. And waiting patiently, however hard that is, praying for the return of Christ to set it all right. John Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage. Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment. Isn't that what you sometimes think? When you see the persecution, when you see the, don't you think that the, the kingdom is just going to perish? Yet, Calvin continues, God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. So he says, don't worry. God's still at work. You can't perceive it all the time. But he has a plan, and he is affecting that plan. And there is no hand that can stand against it. There's no army, there's no government, there's no ruler that can stop him from accomplishing his plans. As Isaiah would say, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That's the God that Isaiah wanted the remnant to trust in. That is the God that I want us to trust in. We see that Jesus 
was born into a dark world that is filled with injustice and God's temporal judgment on nations for that injustice. We see that Jesus, as the light of the world, brings freedom and redemption because all people are party to the injustice. We have hope that our sins of injustice are forgiven. We have hope that our longings for justice will be fulfilled ultimately and finally when Jesus returns. And these two things have to sustain us, have to keep us moving forward in the face of the darkness that seems to overwhelm us. Will we become the darkness to defeat it? Or will we live as children of the light, declaring that its power is temporary and not ultimate? Will we live as children of the light, declaring that the child who is the light has come to offer pardon to guilty sinners such as us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that just as in the days of Moses, when the people had risen up and asked Aaron to make gods for them, a golden calf around which they danced and worshipped supposedly you with all kinds of debauchery, that you had mercy, that you redeemed your people instead of destroying your people. That even now, there are ways in which your church is like the world. There are times when your people turn away from you and do horrible things. And we ask that you would show mercy because of Christ, the greater Redeemer, the Son who is the only mediator between God and man. Father, we see a world that is so desperate in need of this news, even though it seeks to uh, tune it out at every opportunity. Father, help us not to give in to despair when we think of these things, but to continue to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might keep trusting in your goodness, in your wisdom, and in your timing. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.